Welcome to Curated Conversations from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, bringing you the best events each week from the world's number one defense and national security think tank. To explore the hundreds of events we host each year, visit us at CSIS.org. Well, good evening. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, I'm Steve Morrison. Uh, I'm a senior vice president here at CSIS, and I direct our global health work here. And I'm joined by Sarah's Lattice Lau, a senior vice president who directs our energy program. Um, we're each going to offer some remarks about this event uh, uh, and, and offer a few exp explanatory points around how this event fits into uh, some of the broader work that we're undertaking. Um, and then we are going to uh, see a short video created by Dr. Brian Oliver from uh, a respiratory uh, disease expert at the University of Technology in Sydney. Um, and, and then we will invite our three speakers to come forward. Sarah will introduce them. And Sarah will start off the, um, the, the program the conversation that we're going to have, and we're going to come back to all of you in the course of that for your comments and remarks. We want this to be a very interactive session, and I want to offer a welcome to those who are joining us online. Uh, several people made a very major effort to make this possible, in particular, Samantha Chivers. Thank you, Samantha, for all of your prodigious efforts. Um, uh, um, there are other uh, colleagues here, Lisa Highland, Lachlan Carey, Patrick Bouchon, um, Maggie McCartan Gibbs, and uh, Mary Margaret all helped us today to pull this um, together. We had initially on our program Jason Bobian from NPR, who had been reporting from Australia. He got pulled off on the coronavirus uh, outbreak and, and dispatched to, uh, to China at the end of last week and sends his regrets. Um, for us, in terms of the... Um, why are we at the Global Health Policy Center here at CSIS interested in this particular topic? We have, over the last two years, carried out a fairly ambitious commission on health security with a particular reference to how the, how the United States prepares and acts outside its own borders with respect to health security and planning for preparedness. And this grew out of this effort, you know, and this concern with these sets of issues was accelerated dramatically by the shock of Ebola in West Africa, 2014 and 15. Um, and I think you can make a case that the shock that we're seeing both in Australia, Northern California, and elsewhere in terms of fires that are emerging as an expression of a deeper set of changes underway tied to higher temperatures, greater drought, uh, changes in weather patterns and the like um, is raising very serious health security questions around the long-term impacts on, on respiratory systems, on uh, cardiovascular, the long-term impacts in terms of exposure to toxic elements, um, the uh, uh, imp impacts upon communities, upon mental health, depression, PTSD and the like. We'll talk about some of that. We as a program have paid grossly insufficient attention to the dimension of climate change, environmental security, and how that relates to health, to public health, and to how ourselves as a government, as an executive agencies in Congress should be thinking about this. So we welcome the chance to join with Sarah and her program in putting this together. We saw this as a pretty 
terrific opportune moment to begin focusing some of our energies along this. And it's something as part, as Sarah will explain, part of a broader effort within CSIS in the midst of our new strategic plan that's come forward to begin thinking about these big issues and how do we cooperate on this. We put a special emphasis in the work of the commission, the, our Health Security Commission, on the, the, on the element of disorder and instability and insecurity and how that can drive health problems and create openings for uh, within an environment that creates greater opportunities for very harmful effects. I believe that this is totally appropriate line of argument and investigation for us getting involved in looking at these problems. We have posed one very big question here about what does what, what is happening in Australia, what does this represent? And we'll debate that big question around what sense do we make of this? Is it a singular standing catastrophe that will pass? Is it something where we move from crisis to complacency for crisis to complacency? Or is this something of a recurrent and, and deep structural change that's happening? We'll talk about that. We'll also talk about we're taking a very broad approach looking at the impacts upon politics, upon policy, public opinion, economics, and health here. I want to add also one last remark before asking Sarah to share her thoughts. We've put a special emphasis here on the connection between the US and the Australian experiences. And we're delighted that, that Ken is with us, Kaiser, uh, to talk about the, the, the work that has been done looking at the impact of the California fires um, upon communities, upon public health, um, and what is the connection to the experience in Australia. And he'll talk about all of that. But I think it's important to draw a few important connections here. California uh, accounts for about 1% of global greenhouse emissions. Um, Australia is about 1.3%. These are comparable. Uh, these are both uh, environments that have traditions um, of, of, of fires. They both uh, have traditions um, of communities, the areas where the fires are, are concentrated are areas where we have holiday traditions, we have resort traditions, we have coastal areas that are highly sensitive. We have areas that are going through multiple changes at this particular moment that we can talk about that aggravate the sense of risk in this period. The debates that are going on in this country around it, climate change are not dissimilar from the debates in Australia. There are deep partisan divides. As the crisis has worsened in America, in, particularly in, in the uh, fires in California, as the crisis has worsened in Australia, in some ways it's aggravated those tensions and, and, and brought forward the kind of paralyzed state of the debate, but it's also raised this question of, does the velocity and power of these changes stir a different kind of thinking and debate? Does it open the way for a different debate around the realities of climate change and what we need to do about that? We'll hear a lot of discussion of is there a new normal, uh, that we've seen a pattern of new normal in California and Australia that connects us. We'll hear a lot about the widening gaps in terms of inequities in social standing and this meta question around what does this really mean and what does this portend in terms of changes in national policies and the like. So thank you all. 
um, for joining us today. And I'm going to turn to Sarah to kick us off here. Thank Great. You. Well, thanks very much, Steve, and thanks for having the Energy Security and Climate Change Program involved uh, in this initiative. Uh, I, I think it's extremely well-timed, uh, but not just because of the horrific incidences that we're seeing uh, in the case of Australia and the wildfires. I mean, clearly, the statistics are uh, are out there for everybody to, to see, but you know a, a landmass area the size of Iceland uh, are already burned, uh, 33 lives lost as of last week, 2,300 homes destroyed, uh, 1.3 billion dollars in counting and insurance claims, and just a horrific number of animals and biodiversity loss over the course of this event. Right? It's a terrible event. Uh, as were the fires in California, as you rightly note. But for those of us who've been doing work uh, on climate change for multiple decades, the core question was when we were starting to see these types of events occur and the recognition that a new normal would be that these events would get more severe, they would be uh, longer lasting and they would be more uh, frequent, would that cause any kind of political change? Would that cause a change in the way that we were dealing with climate change not just from a how do we recover from these events perspective, but also are we going to do anything as a society to uh, change the causes, man-made greenhouse gas emissions, uh, from the larger phenomenon of climate change. And I think tonight is a great opportunity for us to talk about not what that looks like in theory, but what it looks like in practice, because it is in fact what we're seeing happen not only in uh, these incidents in Australia, but around the world in a series of different events. And it's a really open question for us here at CSIS. Uh, we're really pleased to be engaged in, in this venture because it really ties together what this event not only looks like from a, uh, a, a climate change perspective, what, what it means in terms of public health. I think for you know, many decades, we looked at the climate change issue as being either an environmental issue or a future issue. It is clearly something that is here for us to talk about today. And we here at CSIS will be looking over the next several months at all the ways in which climate change affects uh, the global agenda in a, from a number of different vantage points, whether it's security, whether it's development assistance, whether it's public health. Uh, whether it's the financial community, it really does have a pervasive impact on everything that we do here at CSIS, which is look at strategic threats to peace and security and stability. And so we look forward to being able to do this in a number of different forums, but we were particularly pleased to be able to talk about this in the context of what we've seen happening in Australia uh, over the past several months, what might uh, transpire going forward, still 120 fires uh, 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 raging and, uh, and, and months to go yet. So we need to think about what this is going to look like going forward and how we deal with these instances from a public health perspective. And very pleased to join Steve and his team for that today. So we um, reached out to a number of experts, um, uh, many based in, in Australia, to get their opinions. Um, uh, we were very fortunate in um, Dr. Brian Oliver agreeing to, on a very urgent, rapid basis, put together quite a quite compelling uh, short four-minute video um, talking about his own personal experience, but also what we know and don't know, and how this has altered the thinking around, around the health consequences, with particular reference to lung damage. But beyond that, thinking about 
what this means in terms of the way buildings are constructed and the like. So we're just going to watch that, and then we'll, uh, we'll invite everyone back to the stage, and we'll start the conversation. So please join me. Hi. My name is Brian Oliver, and I'm a researcher based in Sydney, Australia. I work at the Wilcock Institute and the University of Technology, Sydney. My research aims to understand what the health consequences are of breathing in noxious gases and fumes, such as those that are produced in the smoke from wildfires. Before I tell you about some of those health consequences, I just want to share what it was like to live through this particular wildfire event. At the start of the wildfire, the very first time I noticed something was different was at home, where I could smell the strong smell of smoke inside my house. And in fact, the smell of smoke was so bad, I actually thought my house was on fire. But that smoke only served to get worse and thicker. And at the peak of the bushfire season over here, when I looked out of my window, which you can see behind, I could hardly see the trees, the smoke was so thick. So this very visual illustration of what was happening to our air quality led to lots of questions from the public about the potential health consequences. Now, uh, we know that when we have poor air quality, such as that which we experience in Sydney, we have a number of people which need to go to hospital because their respiratory disease, and in particular asthma, gets worse. We also know that people with cardiovascular disease suffer during these periods, and they also meet, may need to attend hospital. We also get very worried about the young and the elderly and the pregnant during these periods because they tend to be more susceptible to, to the effects of breathing in polluted air. What we're really uncertain about are the long-term consequences of breathing in polluted air over the particular bushfire season. In fact, the Australian government has released some money so we can start to address some of those questions, try and understand what the long-term health consequences are. We know from other studies that even a relatively short exposure is bad for our health. It affects the lung function of children. It has a number of adverse health effects. But we don't know what may happen in 20 or 30 years' time. So, for example, we don't know if this recent bushfire event would cause one person more in Australia to have asthma, or a thousand people more to have asthma, or even a million more people to have asthma. We just aren't able to answer that question at the moment. In terms of what this may mean for policy in Australia, I think the pertinent things that we need to address are things like our building code. So, why should my house be so leaky that I can smell smoke? Now, my house was built a number of years ago, and perhaps modern houses are better. But in many workplaces, there's been considerable smoke inside. So I went for an interview one day, and it was a, a large broadcasting company. And I was walking down the corridor, and, and literally the corridor was so dense in smog, I could hardly see down it. It was almost as if the smoke inside the building was worse than outside. And that's because our refrigeration or air conditioning systems in Australia take air from outside and typically don't filter it, they just pump it into the building. So when you have very polluted air, which is abnormal for Australia, then that pollution just ends up straight inside the building. I also think that there has to be some thought around planning for future bushfire or wildfire events. What can be done to prevent them? I'm not an expert in this area, but I know there's no easy solution. One of the solutions that currently on offer is to do backburning, where you have a controlled fire, typically in the winter period. Now, the byproduct of those fires, of course, the smoke, and I've just told you that smoke's not good, so, you know, if our solution is to generate the smoke that we're trying to prevent, that's not an ideal solution in my mind. But if it limits the amount of smoke that we're exposed to, so if we have one day of smoke versus three months of smoke, then perhaps it's something we have to live with.
I'd just like to finish by thanking you for your time and for listening to me. Take care. Okay, like well, a big thanks to uh, Brian Oliver for being able to provide that video. We were very sorry that Jason Bubian wasn't able to come and talk to us about the experiences that he's uh, that he had in sort of reporting on this crisis. But I think a lot of us have seen so much news coverage of the uh, of the bushfires in in, Aust in Australia that um, uh, that we have a lot of context for this conversation. I think we wanted to get to at least three dimensions here in addition to the public health dimensions that Brian was talking about on the video. One is sort of what's the political reaction been in Australia. My colleague Lachlan Carey wrote about this uh, in a couple of his commentaries uh, on, you know, the expectation for Australia to do something about its climate policy uh, and, and the reactions to it. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Also talk about what the economic impact has been uh, and thinking about uh, uh, both sort of short-term needs and long-term sort of thinking about the, the status and position of the Australian economy and, and uh, so much of it being extractive industry resource uh, exportation uh, based and sort of talk about that a little bit. And then, and then talk about some of the public health impacts, what we have learned also from emergency response situations in California and Australia as well. So lots of things to cover. We've got a great panel uh, with us today and very grateful to all of you for being able to join us tonight. Uh, I'm going to start with uh, Dr. Alan Tidwell, who is the director for the Center of Australian and New Zealand Pacific Studies at Georgetown University Walsh School of Foreign Service. So thanks for being here. Uh, and then we're going to talk to uh, Jacob Grieber, who is a U.S. correspondent from the Australia Financial Review. Uh, and then uh, Dr. Kenneth Kaiser, who is the Chief Healthcare Transformation Officer and Senior Executive Vice President at Atlas Research, and has also been working as a firefighter in previous uh, incarnations and uh, EMS systems uh, quite broadly, and, uh, and so has a lot of experience to bring to the table. Um, but maybe, Dr. Tidwell, I just wanted to start with you first. What are your, some of your perceptions of the political impact that these uh, wildfire incidents have had, or brushfire incidents for this season have had in Australia so far? Thank you very much. So, I, you know, as, as everyone here will have read, I mean, the, the political story here is, is big. This is a big political event, and it's, it's impacted the popularity of the serving coalition government led by Prime Minister Scott Morrison pretty dramatically. He's in the most recent news poll, uh, Scott Morrison is polling eight points lower than where he had been before Christmas. And uh, so clearly his popularity has taken a hit. And it's taken a hit in part because of what's been deemed largely as a failing of leadership on his part. Uh, he was, you know, famously vacationing in Hawaii uh, while the fires were burning. On, on November 11th, he had uh, uh, tweeted his uh, hopes and prayers to the victims of fires in parts of Australia and then went off to Hawaii for a holiday and was dragged back, that's the perception, was that he was dragged back to mm -hmm. Australia in order to you know, exercise a little political leadership. So uh, the consequence has been significant. And what's really interesting about these fires uh, in a political sense is their presence. So that there have been far larger fires in Australia in, in history, but these fires are close to populated centers and the smoke is pervasive. It is constant. I talk to my daughter uh, almost every day. She's in Sydney. She works on the ferries. And you can see the smoke. It's palpable that sometimes she can't see the opera house. So that's a political reminder of just the intensity that, that uh, 
that the fires have, and, and in a sense that smoke is a metaphor for the broader impact on the political environment. Um, so Morrison is polling badly. The other comment I would make, which is an interesting sort of twist to the story, is the places where these fires are impacting are by and large in rural or semi-rural areas. And they're in constituencies that are held by either the Labor Party or the National Party. They're not in liberal seats. Scott Morrison is a liberal. I'm not making assertions here, but just simply saying that it's not his immediate party constituents who are the most dramatically affected at the federal parliamentary level. Um, the other interesting thing that I would observe is that the, the constituencies that are being impacted, except for three of them, of the 17 that are being impacted, all fall below the median weekly income. I mean, these are poor regions. Mm. These are not places of great wealth. There are several of these constituencies that border on uh, the poverty line in, in New South Wales, for instance. So this is, this is a, a, a difficult story. And how, and how different is this than normal sort of bushfire seasons? Because as we, you know, this is not the, in terms of loss of life, not the greatest loss of life that has occurred. I mean, Australia is, the sort of counter narrative is that Australia is very used to having bushfires. They're used to political fallout from either dealing with them well or not well. How do you, how do you calibrate this relative to periods in the past? Well, so, you know, broadly speaking, you would say this is the, probably the third largest in terms of area covered bushfire in Australia. And there's mm -hmm. one in 73, sorry, the 74, 75 season that was far larger, but it was largely in lightly populated areas. Mm -hmm. So it didn't have a big political impact. Um, this is closer to, to urban centers, so it, it's having a big impact. And you're right, Australia has had a history of bushfires. You can go back to the 1939 Royal Commission is the first time that I'm aware of that the Commonwealth government actually held a Royal Commission of inquiry into the cause of the fires. Mm -hmm. And I have to say that the reasons for the fires are persistent over time. Mm -hmm. They're, they, they address mismanagement. I mean, overwhelmingly. Now, that might be a byproduct of the Royal Commission itself because it's a bit of a finger-pointing exercise. What did you do wrong? Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, Australia has a deep experience of, of bushfires, and it's an open question. And I say this, I say this uh, with, with no prejudgment. It's an open question as to whether or not Australia is really effective at fighting bushfires. Mm -hmm. They have lots of experience in doing it, mm -hmm. but whether or not they have a national capacity to do so I think is an open question. Mm. And how much of, you know, I mean, going along with that issue is, so we have had experiences here in the United States where we've had natural disasters, happens all over the world, and part of the criticism is uh, that, that we've had mismanagement issues that are systemic over time, and part of it is a response issue. I mean, is it fair to say that much of this was a response issue, the political fallout, or is it is it rising to the level of saying, no, listen, we're not managing these issues effectively. We've got to think about it. I mean, another Royal Commission study was, or another study was commissioned. My understanding is that when you think about disasters and disaster response, it comes in PPRR, uh, prevention, preparation, reaction, recovery. And that I would argue that Australia has been tremendous at reaction. Mm -hmm. Pretty good at recovery not so good in prevention. And I think that's part of the climate change discussion. Mm -hmm. And I think it's an open question as to whether or not the prevention component uh, is fundamentally changing in the face of climate change. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the open question of that PPRR. It's the first P. 
So one, one sort of final follow-up question on this. I, how much of this is actually getting linked to the issue of climate change? I mean, it's been a, a, a big area of focus when we talk about these kinds of incidents. If you don't call them climate change, people don't think they are. And, and for a long time, it's been really hard to you know, make the linkages between long-term climate impacts of warming you know, uh, 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 Earth and natural weather systems. But we're getting much better at that now. But we don't always make those connections in the media, how we cover it, what the government talks about it. Is that changing in Australia in this instance? Well, certainly in the media, the, 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 you know, the, 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 the linking it to climate change has been absolute. I mean, you look at the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's coverage, it's climate change, climate change, climate change. Mm. The government has been, you know, somewhat lukewarm in kind of <laughs> making that link. Um, sometimes, some spokespersons of the government are stronger than others. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I have to be blunt. I mean, you know, this Scott Morrison is the guy who sat in Parliament with a hunk of coal and said, don't be afraid, it's coal. Yeah. You know, you can do with that as you will. Yeah. What is interesting is that the messaging around the, uh, this current bushfire season is, uh, has a, a forerunner in the 2009 Victoria uh, bushfire season, which tragically saw 174 people die. And in that bushfire season, which was much shorter, much, uh, much more truncated uh, season. Uh, the messaging was very much the same. It was, you know, pitting the people who were trying to do backburning or hazard reduction versus the people who wanted to close the coal mines because it was climate change. Mm -hmm. There's a climate change discourse that has to happen here, but I think it has to happen beyond political messaging. And I think that's the really interesting challenge. Mm -hmm. Jacob, how has this, in your view, uh, been conveyed in sort of economic terms, both near-term impact, longer-term strategy? Yeah, look, the economic side of it, I think we're still working out what the tally is. That's the first point. The season still has a long way to go. Um, in fact, I was just talking to someone before I came in that fires are back, you know, in parts of New South Wales. It may have rained in Sydney, but that doesn't mean it rained anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And so we've still got another... Uh, there's another three or four weeks of really crucial hot weather to worry about. In terms of what we do know... In terms of the damage, where it is, the houses that have been lost, it, without, without sort of downplaying it, uh, the human cost and then the obvious biological and you know, animal cost, which mm -hmm. is just heartbreaking, the economic cost is actually quite manageable, I suspect, at this point. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a near $2 trillion economy. It, uh, you know, to build 2,000 houses is not a... You know, that's manageable. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the other thing that people perhaps don't appreciate is that you know there are an awful lot of Australia's GDP comes from a kind of really tiny bit of land mass. I've seen estimates 80% of GDP comes from 0.2% of our land mass. Mm -hmm. So while the fires might, might, might be very dramatic in terms of you know burning down the size of West Virginia equivalent, it, it's spread out. That's the other point to make. So on the economics uh, we'll see. Uh, I suspect it'll be management. The other, manageable. And the other thing that what always happens in a disaster in Australia is you get an upfront hit. Yeah, people worry about insurance premiums going up. You, you lose things like tourism for a while in certain areas. And that's something I know the Australian government's very worried about. Trying to, trying to remind people that there is still bits of Australia that aren't just a pile of charred carbon. You know, there's still plenty of things there and go and see them as a tourist. Um, but the other thing is you then get a little bit of a, a boost when all those things get rebuilt. You know, there's a sort of 
the, the, the GDP comes back. Mm. The problem is GDP doesn't measure the psychological impact and it doesn't measure the impact on politics. And that's the big thing here. That's what's really, that's the thing everyone wants to know. Is this, is this a sea change in the way Australians look at climate change? I suspect it's still too early to see politics. You know, the cynic in me says, even, even in Australia with an event this big, the politics can move on to something else, you know, in time. Uh, because fires do come and go. Like any, you ask any Australian that, they'll, they'll tell you that. Um, but I'm sure we'll, we'll go into the politics because I think that's the most interesting question around all of this. And leadership, the leadership piece is so big in this. Uh, Australians, Australians expect their leaders to be, you know, at the forefront of a crisis. Mm -hmm. Even though actually the day-to-day -day management of bushfires tends to be a state government responsibility. To have, the, to have the PM sitting on a beach in Hawaii in clean air, sure. <laughs> drinking, drinking you know, gin and tonics, that just, I mean, that, that offended everyone. And he's, he's got a lot of work to do to, to pull that back. Um, so that's the other big point uh, I'd make on yeah. that. Uh, the Australians, I think, I, I think it's worth remembering climate change the degree to which you ascribe what's happened this, in this very intense, very long season to climate change, you've got to look at it in the context of a toxic political system when it comes to dealing with, with what our response should be on climate change. I, I think it's fair to say it's claimed at least six leaders in the last 10, 15 years. And if you added opposition leaders, you'd be in double digits, I suspect. This is a diabolical issue. That, that defies simple uh, solution because, yes, we are a major exporter of energy, coal, LNG, so it's not easy like it is for Britain or other countries to simply say we're shutting it down. But by the same token, Australians expect their leaders to have an answer to this problem, this massive climate change problem, and they punish leaders that are seen not to be involved. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's going to come down to how do we figure out a set of solutions uh, that actually do address what is a problem, undoubtedly, but manages the politics and economics of it as well? One more follow-up on that, because I think, uh, as my colleague Lachlan Carey wrote in a piece on the, on the brush fires, Australia also has a decent track record of incentivizing clean energy technologies and, and what could be an alternative form of a sort of new economic future for Australia, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you see Europe and, you know, really having a, an industrial strategy. We had the UK here the other day thinking about, you know, a, a green energy economy as the, the growth engine going forward. I, I know that's a, a couple steps too far in the Australian context, given the pure divisiveness of this, but... Do you think that one of the potential political implications of this season could be more pressure on the extractive industry that is getting a ton of blame for being yeah. one of the reasons why Australia is, continues to be in this political impasse? Uh, the, 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 the resources industry is going to have a long argument ahead of it. I mean, it's already been arguing this stuff for a long time. Uh, Australia, under John Howard, didn't sign the, the protocol back in 2001, you know, mm -hmm. and only the United States was in that club with us. Mm -hmm. So we've been, we've been doing this for a while. Your point about the opportunity, uh, as, as someone writing for the Australian Financial Review, which is very close to business, business is screaming out for a sort of 
for some sort of policy clarity around this mm -hmm. because business wants to invest in this world. Mm -hmm. uh, we've tried to find, we've scoured the world looking for companies that would invest in new coal-fired power stations in Australia mm -hmm. and you won't find them. Like mm -hmm. that, that's just not, it's just not a thing. Mm -hmm. And then the final point is, you look at the way households are behaved. We have an extraordinarily high rate of take-up yeah. of solar panels, mm -hmm. you know, rooftop solar panels. So individual Australians are acting on this, even if there's a perception that the federal government is not. Yeah. And so maybe um, to bring uh, Dr. Kaiser into this, it, this isn't all about politics, right? It's not just places that take action on climate change experience, don't experience these, you know, uh, terrible events in places that don't do, right? I mean, we've got this situation, this parallel we talked about in California, which has experienced really devastating fires uh, season over season, this year included. And, and we're learning a lot about one sort of response mechanisms, thinking about how to deal with those, those situations, but also the public health impacts. Maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the work that you've done and how you think about the public health impacts of, of uh, these kinds of uh, fire situations. Sure, and <clears throat> thank you, Sarah, and, and Steve, for uh, hosting this. I, I compliment CSIS for uh, for holding this forum. The uh, uh, certainly the uh, the health effects of the populations that are impacted by these fires are uh, very close and, and very dear uh, mm -hmm. to them. They're they're not remote or theoretical political discussions. Uh, and there are, I think, as uh, we have seen in, in California. Uh, a wide range of, of health effects uh, that occur both acutely from the uh, the fire itself, from the, the flames, the heat, the, the smoke, uh, the response, you know, ranging from burns to the, as was talked about earlier, the respiratory effects, the, the cardiovascular effects, the uh, psychological uh, mental health effects, there, there are effects on the eyes, there, there's increased trauma, mm -hmm. uh, there's a host of, of acute effects. There's also uh, the chronic or, or delayed effects, uh, many of which also are respiratory and uh, cardiovascular, and, and you could go down that same list. There's some, um, you know, recent data that's emerging. There may be transgenerational effects where the uh, offspring of mothers, uh, pregnant women who have been exposed, uh, may have long-lasting, if not permanent, effects on uh, the children, or at least in... in uh, uh, non-human primates and, and uh, rhesus monkeys where there was a natural kind of experiment that was conducted uh, in, uh, uh, at, at UC Davis in the primate colony there, uh, not by design, it just kind of happened where the uh, cohort of, of pregnant uh, monkeys was exposed to smoke and it turns out that their offspring have a, appear to have permanent uh, effects on their uh, respiratory capacity. Uh, you know, there's still lots of questions that have to be answered there, but this idea that there may actually be uh, transgenerational effects is certainly something that Australia is actually conducting a, a natural experiment here that, that should be uh, investigated. Uh, again, the mental health, other uh, effects uh, chronically. Uh, there's just the, uh, as we've seen in, in uh, uh, many of the, the California wildfires, the interruption of, of health services, either because uh, the hospitals get burned down uh, or have to be uh, evacuated, uh, the road congestion, the smoke may cut off access to healthcare services, the uh, loss of power uh, may mean that the people who are in their homes, their, their ventilators or their 
uh, oxygen concentration devices no longer uh, work. Uh, there may be contamination of water from the, the runoff. I mean, again, a plethora of uh, effects in that regard. Uh, and then one that, that we tend uh, not to think about as much as, as uh, I think has become evident recently is the, um, the movement of large numbers of, of people to different communities, just the mm -hmm. displacement. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, several of the fires that we've had uh, in California have required displacement of, of tens of thousands of, of people, and, and that affects both those individuals but also the, the communities that receive them have uh, a number of effects as well. Mm -hmm. So there's really a wide range of, of health effects. Uh, fortunately, uh, a lot of studies have been done in, in California, and, and we know uh, more than we did uh, some years ago. Uh, as was noted in the, the video earlier, there's still an awful lot we don't know, mm -hmm. uh, and there's a lot of work uh, that needs to be done to really flesh out what are the uh, particularly the, the long-term effects uh, of these fires. Thank you. Thank you all. Um, I want to note that last week, three Americans who were there uh, contributing to the effort died tragically in the crash of a C-130 that's still under investigation. Uh, and we do want to acknowledge the contribution that those Americans made and the sacrifices that they made and that their families and uh, families have, have suffered. Um, and I didn't note at the outset that there is a long history of collaboration between Australian and American uh, firefighting um, entities, and that continues. There's a strong element of solidarity. We've seen Australians in the Northern Californian fires repeatedly. I don't remember the precise number, but it's significant of Americans deployed, professional firefighters deployed today um, in, in, in uh, Australia. I want to also note that this crisis in Australia has, has triggered um, a dramatic upsurge of, 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 of generosity uh, at community levels and across the nation. Um, Sam made the point that one in two Australians have personally contributed towards uh, funds uh, for the recovery, uh, for the firefighters, for the victims, for the displaced, um, and the like. Uh, Sam herself organized a, uh, something here at CSIS last week, which raised $3,000, I want to note, for the firefighters and victims. Um, on a slightly lighter note, um, Alan noted that uh, when uh, Scott Morrison uh, moved out to uh, Hawaii in the midst of this crisis, that people were very critical of him. And they, there was a phrase that surfaced, SCOMO, as a new term, a new verb, or, or perhaps a noun of, uh, behavior of this sort, and as a Morrison, I just want to say I don't want to <laughs> promote that term too much. You know, the as Steve Morrison, the Scomo makes me a little uncomfortable. Um, on the questions of shock and what force does shock have on culture, politics, and public opinion, mm. Australia has some very interesting precedents. Right, you had the gun massacre in '96 which triggered some of the most effective and widespread and enduring controls on weapons in Australia. And Australia is an exceptionally safe country in terms of that. It had the Black Saturday, which I think was referenced in your remarks, a tragedy in 09, in which uh, three, uh, 173, 174 
uh, individuals were killed in a 24-hour period uh, by wildfires. And that triggered changes in the early warning system within Australia and the whole philosophy of what do you do? Do you stand and fight or do you get out of harm's way? And the evacuation procedures and the protocols and communication methods. And though there are over 30 people who have died in the midst of fires that have rampaged and destroyed 25 million acres, that's still a remar- that's a tragic number, but it's a remarkably low number. And the, a remarkably low number of injured in this period. And that's a testimony to the lessons learned that, and that were acted upon looking forward. So my question here is, you know, this is a crisis and a shock, not unlike those two other historical episodes. As has been pointed out by Ken and others, it's a highly personal shock. I mean, this is something that countless individuals have experienced, the terror, the threat to health, and the displacement, and the fear that comes through all of these experiences. And they have been very vocal, and it's been communicated in the media, in social media, and elsewhere, the trauma and experiences of countless citizens. And that has been, I think, enormously powerful, observing from a distance here, and observing what has happened in California, too, in this day and age in which those experiences are communicated and transmitted in a very real way. And the Health consequences are profound and powerful as a transmitter of shock. So maybe we can come back to, to um, uh, Alan and Jacob to tell us, I mean, is it fair proposition to say that this is a shock moment like those earlier cases where you can look back and say very significant shifts occurred after those? And if it is, how might that play its way forward? We know that there's changes proposed with the grand architecture of the Australian economy, can that be changed? Australia is the number three exporter of coal. Is it going to get out from that and have another mega a structural shift in the future of its own economy, but in its own internal policies of how green does it want to be? Yeah. It can do many things that would make it a, 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 a much more sustainable um, uh, uh, economy in that regard in terms of its energy and the like. Jacob, what do you think? I, I agree with you. It is, a, it is a shock comparable to those other historic ones that you mentioned. In some ways, it's much harder because... Um, and this, is, this goes back to the leadership thing, I think. Uh, when John Howard was confronted with that massacre in Hobart, he had in the previous years talked about the need for gun reform. It wasn't, it wasn't, they weren't speeches that got a lot of coverage, but it, he had already sort of Softened laid ground. out yeah. some groundwork and reasoning yeah. behind it. Because we'd had a series of killings, you know, throughout the 80s, 70s, 80s and early 90s. They weren't on that scale. And when the big one happened, he was able to, you know, act. Um, and I agree with you, that's one of the, being a, being a new resident here, it's one of the greatest things looking back on what Australia does. I, 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 it'd be great if you could find a solution to that. Uh, the climate change thing, though, is, is so multifaceted. You know, you're talking about redesigning an economy. Yes. Um, you, have, you have those who want really ambitious, big action immediately. Uh, and then I think what, what I suspect you're going to see is because Morrison hasn't, 
you know, his background is obviously, as you said, of standing in Parliament with a lump of coal. He's not, he hasn't laid the groundwork in that way for dramatic climate change action. But he does and, have his own cabinet members openly shifting from being denialists or skeptics to, to saying, coming out in public and saying, uh, has, yes, this is real, and we need to we need to come to terms with it. So they're they're all saying you've got to do something about it. You can't ignore it. And yes. they were given a warning by their federal director after the May election. Yes, you won the May election. Uh, Labor was running on a on a policy platform of big yes. action, um, but they were told by the federal director you can't you can't sit on your laurels on this. Australians do want action. So the thing that I think you'll see is a lot of direct action around things like. Maybe, maybe housing standards, you know, building codes, um, how, you, how you deal with future fires. Um, but if you have a bunch two, of stuff yeah, where well, they've been remiss, you know, yeah. they haven't addressed things like the car fleet. Yes. You know, they kicked that one down the road and they've been... Yeah. That's, that's why the political reaction has been so extreme, yeah. because it came in the context of a government that won unexpectedly and basically sat on its backside yes. for the first six months and then got bitten by reality. May I just follow up on two things? One is, in Alan, jump in too, please. I mean, this, it's been reported over and over and over again that this also struck at the biodiversity. It struck at the, at, at the most elemental identity of this country in, right. in, in many respects. Yeah. And, and, and that was very, very notable as a, as a special profound feature of this along with the profound and widespread trauma that was experienced by those who were nearby this and the fact that their experiences were transmitted so powerfully. Secondly, the government has, has brought forward a commitment to an investigation plus a $2 billion fund. So here we have, to get back to, to Sarah's point, is this an opportunity to start experimenting and investing in things that will, will in fact, enhance the renewables and enhance the integrity of the way in which the economy is structured and managed. Yeah, I think it's happening already. Mm. I think that's more likely to happen uh, with greater intensity. Uh, Ross Garno, who's one of our great economists, has pointed this out. He was the one who wrote the report back in the mid-noughties describing exactly this summer that we've just had, that we would get longer, hotter, more intense fires, uh, you know, in coming years, and it's, it's borne out and, and he makes the point that there is this huge opportunity. Um, and we have, you know, I can think of a couple of cases of young entrepreneurs um, putting serious money into very bold uh, new projects. For instance, a power line to Singapore from a, an enormous solar array in the Northern Territory is one plan. It would be one of the biggest solar arrays on the planet basically supplying Singapore its energy needs. It's, it's sort of crazy to even imagine yeah. that you could do that, but that's, that's sort of what's coming out of all of this. I, I, I think if I could jump in, there's, there, there are a couple of things. I mean, one is just an to make the observation that Australia has the history and the tradition in its, in its makeup to make bold, uh, to take bold leadership. And so you, you mentioned the, the, the gun legislation around Port Arthur, but you know, there was the, also the, the Cyclone Tracy and the way in which when Darwin was flattened by Cyclone Tracy, when people around the country put up displaced Darwinians. And, you know, this was, this was commonplace. And my wife talks warmly about her childhood, about putting up people from Darwin who, whose homes had been destroyed. And so Australians have a tradition of, of, of 
taking bold leadership, this is not one of those times. And as Jacob has pointed out, there's some complexity there. But I think there's also a, um, uh, there's an interesting event occurring around the energy cycle that's not getting the attention it deserves. And that is around the hydrogen cycle. Uh, the CSIRO, the Commonwealth Scientific Investigation, uh, uh, Investigation Research Organization, is looking at hydrogen. And you know, the problem with hydrogen is to, to extract hydrogen from water. You use electrolysis. It's very expensive to do. CSIRO have actually developed a membrane that extracts hydrogen gas from ammonia. And the, the, the supply chain that you can utilize for the distribution of ammonia to extract the hydrogen out in a car is already existing. It's in every gasoline station around the world. There's an international market in ammonia. Did you know that the largest increase in natural resource expansion is in ammonia in Australia today? No, I did not know. And the company no, behind it is FMG. Now I do. Okay, it's, so it's that's, FMG. That's, so it's uh, Tweedy Forrester. Forrest. Yeah, it's yeah. Tweedy Forrester. Yeah. It's one of the largest uh, corporations in Australia. They're pumping out pumping money into the hydrogen cycle. So there's a, there's a promise there. Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do with the $2 billion cash splash. That's about getting reelected. Yeah. yeah. All right, Ken, uh, we, we need to hear from you before we move to open things up here to our audience. What you've heard here about investment strategies, what you've heard about this, the, the centrality of health issues and communities and universities and the like playing a role. Tell us the work that you've done, this remarkable convening that you did in June in Sacramento, looking of multidisciplinary approach. Um, uh, soon after the, the campfire, uh, looking at, um, at the consequences, what, what are your reactions to what you've heard here? Well, let me say two things. And, and first, just to put this in context, we uh, the National Academy of Medicine sponsored a, uh, a workshop last June to look at the health effects, or not just health effects, but the preparedness and, and effect on communities and, and a, really quite a, a range of topics on the effect of the uh, wildfires in, in California. That report uh, <clears throat> will be in its final form any day now. Uh, a preliminary draft was published in mid-December and it will be out, and, and I think it, it, many will find it uh, an, an extremely interesting and, and comprehensive report for what a two-day workshop uh, would cover. But, you know, maybe a, a, this somewhat of an editorial comment, but, you know, I, I hear <clears throat> how difficult it is to change the economy and to do some of the things that, that need to be done. And I wouldn't argue with that at, at all, <clears throat> but I would just say that uh, kicking the can down the road, putting it off, is just going to make it a lot harder. Uh, and I think the, the folks who are not inclined to step up to the plate and take the bold action that needs to be taken now, indeed should have been taken yesterday, uh, don't realize the severity of the threat that this poses. And, and this is a real existential threat. And uh, yes, it is hard. It's going to be very hard. But the longer we put it off, the harder it's going to get, and the more severe are going to be the consequences. And this is something that has to be addressed by bold action now. Uh, and certainly those of us who have children uh, or grandchildren uh, owe it to them uh, to be taking those bold actions right now. Ken, what is, the, what is the agenda, the investment agenda in public health 
looking ahead? Because there's a lot of, we, we heard from Brian, there's a lot of things we don't know. If you're going to talk about what, from the California perspective, I'm sure there's very close alignment with what's needed in Australia, too. Australia has a very strong public health system, has a very strong university-based and institute-based biomedical research community. It has distinguished, it, it's distinguished itself globally on multiple issues. There's no reason why that community won't be very deeply engaged in looking ahead in this next phase. In your remarkable convening and the product that came forward, and I'd urge all of you to, to, to read this study, it's full of remarkable insights into what has happened and the perceptions. What is the, what is the agenda looking forward? What is the research agenda on the health dimensions? Well, I, I wish I could say there was a research agenda uh, going forward. Uh, there isn't, uh, and there needs to be, uh, and there needs to be dedicated funding looking at the, uh, the consequences. I would say, though, that there also needs to be a new model in, in how we do this work. There is no reason why the, uh, the talent, uh, the intellectual capacity that exists in California should not be teaming up with the, the uh, intellectual capacity that exists in Australia and in Indonesia and in many other areas that are also experiencing this, working together to uh, come to some common solutions to some common problems that we're all facing. Thank you. Steve, I just wanted to, uh, before we go to questions, and I want to ask my colleague Lachlan to say a couple of words because he's been thinking about this both on a professional and, and personal basis. I, I do think it, it's always interesting to me, and one of the good things I think that's happened in the last year is over the course of my career, we've had these conversations where we think about impacts of climate change and we go to the mitigation side of the equation, which is absolutely essential. And if we had done, you're exactly right, if we had been working on this issue as earnestly as we should have been for the last three decades, we would probably be much further along in finding solutions. The adaptation side is a very difficult conversation to have politically and locally. It requires a lot of resources. It requires a lot of tough conversations about where you live and how you manage these things and what you will ensure and what you won't ensure. And so there's other resources out there like the Global Adaptation Commission that's been out there trying to talk about what we know and don't know about changing the way communities live, the way we think about how we're going to have to not you know, these events are the new normal and they get worse. And so that means, you know, in, on the trajectory that we're on, we're going to have to make some really tough decisions about uh, how we protect right. uh, people around us. And I think that, that this is, uh, this year in particular, there's been a bit of a sea change in what we're willing to put on the table in those conversations as well. So, so let me make maybe one comment on that. The, sure. the uh, title of this, uh, is this a singular catastrophe or the new normal. Uh, certainly from the, the California perspective, this is the normal. This is what we uh, this are is the old face. This is the old normal. It is now <laughs> the old normal almost. Uh, that uh, This is uh, what we uh, have to look forward to going forward, except it's going to get worse. Yep. Yeah. Right. Uh, and I think that that uh, is going to be the situation in Australia and, and elsewhere. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, can I yeah, so I just wanted to, I think you're... Stand up, oh, Lachlan. Um, so I just wanted to jump on what you said about this being a natural experiment. And I think there's sort of four key elements to this natural experiment uh, that I see. The first is what Sarah mentioned at the start of, in climate policy circles, we see, okay, is it about hope or fear? And which, which way should we, should we sort of approach this? And I think how Australia responds to this will be an interesting experiment for us to watch going forward. You know, do the activists sort of say, okay, there's a 
hopeful future, as Ross Garneau puts it, of us being a sort of energy superpower in this clean industry future? Or is it sort of this fear-mongering of sort of your Extinction Rebellion uh, type activists? And we don't know which uh, will be more effective. Uh, the second is sort of breadth and depth of public opinion. Mm. And I think what we've seen is a, is a serious uptick in support for climate change policies, but we're not sure yet the, the sort of depth of, of that support. So climate change is still sort of considered an envir environmental issue. Mm. And so it's still often second, third, maybe even fourth in a lot of people's priority list. And so I think until, uh, you know, we'll see whether these fires lead that to sort of bump up and what effect that has on policies. Uh, Third, this idea of a green industrial policy or, or a just transition, which we've sort of talked about. And a lot of climate policy is, uh, in Australia has been focused, I think, on, on a just transition. So you look in the last election, there was a lot of protesting about the Adani coal mine, for instance. Mm -hmm. And so the whole conversation was about, okay, how do you employ these, these former coal miners? And it was really think about, thinking about the economic costs and not some of the sort of economic opportunities. And then finally, I think Australia has this much broader challenge ahead of it, which is sort of to diversify or to essentially succumb to uh, the Dutch disease, which is that Australia increasingly is sort of relying on extractive industries and, and, uh, and resources that it's been selling to China for the last 20 years or so. And what this, this does historically in, in countries is sort of erode institutions and, and erode uh, sort of economic opportunities. And I think Australia really needs to, to sort of step up its ability to, um, to sort of diversify. There was a Harvard report that came out last year that, that said Australia is young, dumb, and getting dumber. And, uh, and unfortunately, that's when you look at the, uh, the statistics in terms of investment in education and the complexity of our industries, that, that is what's been taking place. So those are the sort of four like, key uh, you know, natural experiments, as it were, that I think will be interesting to watch going forward. Well said. Thank you, Lachlan. Thanks. So we've got 20 minutes, 25 minutes to hear from you. Uh, what I'd like you to do is bundle together um, several uh, quick uh, uh, comments or questions. And please identify yourself. Please be very succinct and limit yourself to one question. Let's start. Just put your hands up, and we'll, we'll, we'll bundle together uh, four or five uh, comments. Yes, please. My name is Walter Jurassic. Thank you for the comments. and. Excellent panel. Uh, I hear everything except one thing I don't Please hear. speak up a bit more. <clears throat> one thing I will ask you, what impact has the environment movement effects on the fires in Australia, in California, when the farmers and the forest service cannot manage the land management? Otherwise, even the small farmers where I grew up, they better manage their forest when I see it. They knew what to do. They prevented from the fire. However, I see the politicians. They don't have a common sense. Cut the grass, cut the bushes, and environmentalists cannot tell, dictate, you cannot do that, you cannot do that. With common sense, we can combine this together and make things happen. Thank you. There's a hand right over here, right? Just at the end of that row right there. Put your hand up, please. Hi, I'm Natalie with the Asia Foundation. Um, you said that Australia is not very good at prevention. So if this is the new normal, what sort of things, what sort of change do we need to see regarding prevention? Others? 
Hi, I'm Sangya from Colby College. Um, so I have two questions. So the first one is regarding the fact that a lot of people who deny climate change um, argue the fact that most of the fires in Australia are due to the result of the Indian Ocean dip pole. And how do you really convince someone like that from position and showcase the science behind climate change with regards to the Indian Ocean dip pole? Um, and then my other question was the fact that a lot of the lands that have been burnt out have actually targeted indigenous communities and um, in Australia. And one of the things I do want to focus is the issue around um, climate justice and environmental justice and when we are transitioning, what kind of a world do we want to transition in where we where do like these people whose voices are not heard in normal politics are to be heard and or do we want to sustain the same system which is easier to transition into? So maybe in when we're talking about transitioning, I would like to hear your thoughts about that. Thank you. Mm -hmm. We had a hand right here. Let's take this, uh, yes. please. Yes, and then we'll, we'll come back to some of you in a, for a second round. Yes, please. Yeah, thank you. Um, my name's Evan Bernowski. Um, so in the United States, I think in the absence of you know, federal action, there's been significant movement by states and local governments. Please speak um, up a bit. And I think the, the extent to which they've actually resulted in tangible greenhouse gas reductions is still remains to be seen, but they've certainly resulted in local and state governments having uh, greater resiliency initiatives and, and having, I think, benefits on adaptation. So I'm interested in knowing um, if there's a potential for state and local governments to step up and maybe fill some of the gap that uh, could exist at the federal level. Okay. Thank you. Who'd like to jump in on this? I'd like to jump in, if you don't mind, on the, uh, the question of um, a couple of people asked, uh, made a comment about um, uh, what would broadly be called hazard reduction. Uh, in my experience, it's called uh, back burning, going into the bush, burning out the bush, burning the grass, and so on. Um, this is an area of complete misunderstanding in Australia. I won't comment about the United States. That's not my area of focus. So in Australia, it has been the, the, the whipping post uh, for um, uh, essentially uh, paid political announcements. Uh, you're not doing enough backburning. The reality is in New South Wales, the trend line on, on hazard reduction over a 10-year period has been on the upward slope. They have increased hazard reduction by about 25%. To say that it hasn't been happening or has been prevented from happening by politicians in Australia is just not true. In fact, I went through the exercise, just I imagined myself as a decision maker, and I went through the logic tree that the New South Wales government provides on how to approve backburning or hazard reduction. And guess what? The concerns aren't environmental. They're human and economic. Those are the first two things they take into account. I used to have a student, I'd like to comment, I used to have a student who was a GP in Western Sydney, and after the 1994 fires, he used to comment every class, oh, we always fight backburning because my patients have asthma. So there was a health concern. That's not an environmental concern, mm -hmm. right? That's a public health concern. And so there's a metric that they use. And the metric concerns a period of time in which you can burn, when it's, when it's, uh, it's not so dry, and you know, there are a whole series of issues. It's not a political choice about environmentalists in Australia, that's just, just not true, just not true. Mm. Um, and on the prevention front, can I jump on a prevention? Is that okay? Mm. Sure. Yeah, okay. So the prevention front is a really interesting one. I think that goes back to political leadership. 
So prevention, you know, my, my panelists have talked a little bit about sort of some of the prevention issue here. If we were talking about climate change as a public health issue and talking about it as how can we prevent climate change from having negative uh, impacts on public health, that would be a prevention orientation. And we could share that knowledge with people from California, from Indonesia, and from around, uh, around the Asia Pacific. Why not? So I think this is a matter about political leadership. And unfortunately, in Australia, the, the dis discussion always boils down to it's backburning or coal. And that's a rubbish way of talking about public policy. <laughs> Did you want to add anything? Um, I, I have to say, I, I was obviously here in D.C. during this whole period. Mm -hmm. But one of my kind of perceptions watching both what, what my friends and family were saying to me uh, and a good friend of mine lost his house in, uh, on the coast in New South Wales. What, what jumped out at me about this, this set of fires, as opposed to, say, the ones in 2009, the state governments and the local governments were organised, especially in New South Wales and Victoria, very proactive. They moved an extraordinary number of people out of the way. When, when they did the modelling, which is another thing that's probably getting better, the computers, you know, let you predict where the fires mm -hmm. are going to be when the when the wind changes, and that's that's always the most dangerous moment because you have a fire front and the wind changes 90 degrees. Suddenly, your fire front is 10 times bigger than you thought. Mm -hmm. They moved. I mean, imagine imagine the Maryland sort of Atlantic coast, Delaware and Rehoboth Beach, in the middle of summer. You know, they they had to move that entire population out of there in three or four days, and they did it. And a lot of people still died, but it wasn't like in 2009. So, I, you know, I think to your, your point, I think that's one of the things that's perhaps been missed because the focus was on the PM mishandling it so badly and being in Hawaii. Actually, at the state level, it's been quite a, you know, given how big it is, it's been quite, a, quite a, an effective response. Ken, do you want to say a bit of... Uh, I mean, I'm sure some of these issues are triggering your thoughts, but the, on the indigenous communities and the, the call for common sense solutions that reach back in terms of practices, farming practices. You touch on some of this in your work. Yeah, well, I, I would <clears throat> say a couple of things. One, um, just speaking about vulnerable communities, I think the comment was made earlier about in Australia, much of the area that's impacted currently are in uh, locations that have low uh, socioeconomic status and, and are, you know, would, would be fall under the rubric of, of vulnerable populations, which is what we've seen in, in California as well. And, and I guess the point is that these are also the populations who are least able to do some of the, the preparedness and, and mitigation efforts because they don't have the resources to do uh, land management around their houses. They, they have the least uh, ability to upgrade their, their houses. And, and we could go down the list so that you know, the, the vulnerable communities, uh, which are going to be perhaps uh, most adversely impacted, also have the least resources to do uh, preparation or prevention efforts in, in the first place. Uh, just shifting gears, the, uh, the comment about can state governments step up to the plate? And absolutely. Uh, and I think uh, while things may not be uh, uh, perfect uh, in California. I, I think California is a great example of having uh, taken a very leadership role uh, in dealing with, with climate change. Uh, there's a lot more that could be done, uh, but certainly it is uh, ahead of, of many others. And, and I think this is not 
uh, unusual uh, in the U.S. that states actually take the lead and the federal government comes uh, along after a majority of states have actually sometimes done things. Not, not <laughs> always, but sometimes. Uh, uh, you know, we're seeing this being played out right now with legalization of, of marijuana is just one example. They, that may not be a good example to use, but the, uh, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of other examples where the, the federal yeah. government eventually comes along after a lot of states uh, have uh, taken action on an issue. Mm. Steve, I just want to add two points, particularly to the questions about uh, how to deal with climate science discussions, particularly, and I, I, don't, I don't know all the specificity of that particular discussion, but it is very analogous to how, how you deal with climate discussions writ large, which is, you know, for a long time, there was a, there was a movement in sort of the environmentalist and sort of pro-climate movement, which is if someone was a denialist, you labeled them and you didn't talk to them anymore, right? It was like, I'm not gonna have that conversation with you. I think we're in a little bit of a different place right now, which is if you want to have that conversation, it's a good thing to have that conversation. Maybe not to perpetuate false debates about science that is settled, but recognizing the idea, excuse me, science is settled, science that is you know, fairly well confirmed that we understand what a trend line is, and really to open up new areas of conversation where you make the linkages between climate change and phenomenon that people are seeing in their life and their livelihood. It, it, is, it, is, it is a hard thing to do. It's time consuming to do, but I think we're seeing a lot of people who are saying you have to listen to the science. In order to listen to the science, you have to understand it to a certain degree. And so there's a lot of people out there who are now sort of engaging in those conversations at a local level, trying to connect some of these instances to, uh, to sort of broader scientific trends and things like that. So I think, I think that you know, actually having that conversation, um, there's, some, there's some benefit to that. You also mentioned sort of the just transition piece of this equation, which I think is another interesting dynamic of the period of time that we live in, which is, you know, so much of not acting on climate change has been um, uh, connected to sort of our political, economic, and power structures that we have, bringing new voices into that conversation particularly, you know, ones that are disenfranchised from the debate, but also are probably on the front lines of impact, has been enormously powerful in trying to change the political dynamic around these conversations. I think it's an increasingly important thing to do. I, I still wonder whether or not we're going to be able to achieve anything like environmental or climate justice for a huge portion of communities around the world. But I do know that we're incorporating them now in a way that we just haven't in the, in the previous decades. And so I think politically, you know, not being able to not include those, converse, those, those sort of communities and those perspectives in this conversation is just a, is a good place to be uh, in, in moving things forward, so. We have a few minutes left. Let's take, perhaps take a few more comments and questions. There's some folks in the back who are, Michael, right Everybody's here. Everybody's awake. Yes. <laughs> Great, thanks, so really appreciated the. Um, Please identify yourself. Oh, sorry, Michael Panfield with EDF. Really appreciated the presentation. What I'm curious about is whether or not um, discussion around engagement around and um, implementation around uh, the bushfires have been connected to larger questions of adaptation and um, other other effects of climate risk. And so what I mean by that is my sense is that extreme weather is going to come about in multiple different ways and forms. 
And I'm interested whether or not the discussion is, well, how do we stop this one you know, symptomatic expression of climate change, or if it's a discussion around, well, we have a very different risk profile, and we need to sort of respond to that effectively to protect the public health of our citizens. Um, so just would be interested to hear where the discussion is on that Thank you. point. Thank you. Right here, uh, Rachel, and then uh, in front here, and then we'll come back and, and finish up. Thank yes, you. what please My identify name is yourself. Pardon me? My name is Guadalupe. Can you hear me better? Yeah. Yeah, speak up, please. All right, thanks. Uh, I was just hearing everything about the climate change. I'm talking about because I am original from South America. Did the natural disaster happen over there, like the earthquake, um, volcanoes eruptions, and there were ashes all over the place. And one time we have a terrible fire in Galapagos. Perhaps you heard about that. Many people of our countries collaborate with that. What we found out about that happening in Galapagos was that they have a limitation of people to be allowed to live in that island because, because of preservation. However, the people they were as a tourist over there, and because they were not allowed to stay there, they make it a fire. So in my opinion, I believe it's as an individual that we have the obligation to have education that if something happened in the fire, how to prevent? So right now, they have in Galapagos very strict issues in how to prevent that. Hopefully, it ne never happen again. Thank you. One last question right here. My name is Terry Hill. I'm with the Passive House Institute on the board and on the board of the Emerge Alliance. And uh, you brought back a, a memory bubble for me. I fought a bushfire in Australia back in 1964. So on the Snowy Mountain Scheme. But my question is, in California, uh, a lot of the, the fires were attributed to PG&E. And there have been a lot of fall, uh, fallout from that. And PG&E has been cutting off electricity if the winds change. Have there been any uh, attributations for, to the utilities in Australia for starting the fires? Why don't we run? have our speakers we'll start with um, uh, we'll start with Jacob and, and just migrate down and each of you yeah. offer your closing thoughts to those to those questions and then Sarah and I can say some closing remarks and then we'll adjourn Jacob yeah I haven't heard the utilities piece um, and, and I haven't heard it in previous fires either there's a there is a an argument that's inevitably drifted into a culture war um, battleground, which is how many of the fires were set off by arsonists versus uh, lightning strike or other other triggers, um, and the the numbers there got mixed up. You know, a lot of people were were pulled up for doing things like working an angle grinder on a day when they shouldn't have been, and the number of actual arsonists lighting fires seems to be a very small percentage of the fires that we've seen. Yeah. It's, yeah, and, and you know, on the prevention piece, it's a big country, and you can you can rake a lot of grass for a lot of years, <laughs> and you're still going to have big fires. It's, yeah. it's yeah. Um, just on the, the the power infrastructure, I think that 2009 was I think the fire in, in Victoria, I think the, the 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 power system played a role in that, and I don't remember all the details, so I'm sorry I I, I can't give voice to that. The other comment I would make about um, the power infrastructure, 
oddly, it hasn't been the, the PG&E or the Australian equivalent causing the fires. It's been the, the, the poles, you know, the supply of electricity being uh, uh, um, hindered by the bushfires. Their people have been without power. I think there's a small spot in New South Wales where they haven't had power for almost a month. And it's just been struggling to get power there. So, I, you know, it's clearly power distribution is, is playing a role, but not quite as you had envisioned. So, yes. And okay. the, the comment had to do with litigation, of which there's a lot of, of litigation currently uh, against Pacific Gas and Electric uh, for uh, maintenance of power lines and, and uh, transformer issues and other things uh, as a, a cause for the fires in Northern California. There's also uh, similar uh, litigation against Southern California Edison and the, the Woolsey fire in, in uh, Southern California. Uh, you know, litigation is, is part of the California landscape, uh, just like, uh, you know, palm trees and, and other things. Uh, but, and I'm not going to comment uh, uh, further you should, about you that. You should sue the people who put eucalypts there. <laughs> You've covered your landscape in bombs that grow back every time. <laughs> All right, so. Great, thank you. Shall I offer some closing yes, remarks and then ask you to close? Sure, sure. Okay. Um, first of all, thanks to all our speakers and to Brian Oliver and to Samuel, uh, Sam Shivers and, and all the other staff and colleagues who've made this possible. A couple of things that struck me. One is I, I really liked Ken's remark that we need to find a way to co-join the experts of the U.S. and Australia around the agenda looking forward because there are very strong alignments and parallels and, and points of, of, of convergence here. And perhaps we can think a bit more about that. Um, this issue, it seems to me, is one that is deeply personal. People go through these experiences multiple times. Uh, in my family, my sister in Sonoma and her family have been evacuated twice. Mm -hmm. My mother and my sister were evacuated from Long Beach Island when Sandy struck. I mean, these things live with you for, the, for your lives, and they have a resonance and a power as a personal experiences. Plus, they're a natural disaster that keeps coming, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's, 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 it's less easily parked back in your memory in this current period, and that is a very important thing. Um, I was encouraged at the learning that we talked about that's happened, that... In both Australia and California, there's been improvements and gains made in the response methods, in the data, in the early warning, in the philosophies of, of response, in the type of remarkable work that people have undertaken, like Ken and the academies, um, in the like. I'm also a bit humbled and um, cautioned by the reality that our cultural habits and our national identities get in the way oftentimes around this. I mean, when Sandy struck, it looked like inevitably the habits of the New Jersey coast were going to change forever. Now, seven years later, it's everybody's built back a little better, but not that much, but everybody's there. I mean, the beach is the beach. And I think <laughs> that in, in Australia, the beach is the beach too. And the cyclical and seasonal cultural habits don't change that quickly and the same can be said for the for the pride and the and the excitement generated by the wine country and by the beauty of California from stem to stern and the and the magnificence of the state and the and the power that has to people so that you know we um, 
we, these don't change automatically because you have a crisis. You have things that enter the equation that encourage people to hope that this won't happen again quite with the same level. On the mega question, I hear most people saying, yes, there's, people are shifting towards recognition of this as, as a deep change, as, a, as something that, that is structural, that is rooted in multiple factors coming together. We didn't talk about some of the demographic and, 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 and displacement and, and other factors that reinforce all of this. But I think Sarah's point that the toxicity around these issues it doesn't dissolve or go away automatically. And we have to be extremely careful in trying to think how we can transcend that toxicity in this moment of opportunity in order to get people of good faith talking constructively about what can be done mm -hmm. and not lapse into the finger pointing. I mean, they, it, when, this, when, when uh, the prime minister went to, went to uh, um, uh, Honolulu, uh, you know, we welcome people in Australia coming to Honolulu for their vacations. Um, the, the opposition jumped on this in a really exaggerated way, and it was part of the sort of, the, a reflection of the deep partisan divide within Australia, and that's a toxic politics we have here. Mm -hmm. In other words, where somebody stumbles and, and we go back to our corners, and, and that's difficult, and yet here, there's a moment where I believe that people of a common, with common sense and good faith can begin to talk about these issues um, in a new and different way and try to transcend that. But it's going to be difficult, I think. Sarah, thank you so much for helping make this happen. No, and thank you guys, and thank you all for, for uh, sharing your thoughts with us. I mean, I, I agree with everything you said, Steve. I think the, the one thing I would add is that, you know, we started this whole thing with a question, which is, is this the new normal? I don't think that's a question. I think this is the new normal. I think the choice and the question is really, what do we plan to do about it? And uh, very similar to where you started on your health commission, you know, no matter who we're working with here at CSIS thinking about the issues of climate change, whether it's transitioning the energy sector, whether it's thinking about security impacts, whether it's thinking about health impacts, these are systemic issues. They require us to make a choice and to try and head in a different direction. And that's much different than reacting and going back to complacency and reacting and going back to complacency. And so I do think that it does require us to think about the opportunity set that goes with the kinds of economic transitions, the kinds of political transitions that need to be taken into account for thinking about actually managing this issue. So if this is the new normal, I just hope we come up with uh, different reactions and responses going forward. So, But thank you all very much for doing this, and thank you for joining us. Thanks for joining us for another curated conversation from CSIS. Tune in next week for more, and remember, you can explore all of our events online at CSIS.org.